0: We're moving into the 7th chapter of Mark's Gospel today, and we're reading the first 13 verses. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. and When they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, With unwashing hands they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft eat not. Holding the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and at tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold a tradition of men as the washing of pops, pots and cups. And many other such things, many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandments of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honour thy father and thy mother, and whoso careseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother, making the word of God of non-effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered. And many such like things do ye. Okay. So the Pharisees are at it again. They travelled a long way for the single purpose of finding fault in the speech or behaviour of Jesus of Nazareth. They don't want to be proven wrong. Their minds have long since been made up. This man was a fraud and he needed to go. What was it this time? Another crime against the Sabbath, maybe. Now this was the, about the disciples <clears throat> not washing their hands before they ate. It's not it's not quite the same as you, as your mum telling you when you were younger, you know, get those filthy hands washed before your dinner. It was different. Among, among the hundreds of regulations they'd invented, there were a few about Washing, For example, they'd wash after coming into contact with Gentiles as if uh, they became polluted spiritually by brushing against them in the market or something. Verses 3 and 4 are a kind of parenthesis. Mark, as it were, he turns to the reader to explain what the practice of the Jews was. They were always washing themselves, all kinds of household items, and even their furniture. Now remember, this wasn't about being clean and tidy. This was about ritual purification. That Mark takes the time to explain this. It shows us again, by the way, his gospel account was aimed at a non-Jewish audience. I should just make a comment on this practice of invoking Corban. It's quite obvious that a young person has a duty of care towards his parents. If they're too old to work or are prevented by illness or infirmity, it's expected that children will help them out as they're able. However, if, if for whatever reason the son or daughter wanted to avoid that responsibility, they could declare that any financial help they would have given to their parents, it would now be dedicated to God instead. How noble. I'm sorry mum and dad, but I can't help you out. I've dedicated my money to the work of God. Now it might not surprise you to learn the money didn't always end up going to the work of God. I mean, you could just declare Corban and keep all your money and spend it on yourself. It was a simple practice and one the Pharisees did nothing to uh, discourage. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees on this occasion provides us with an opportunity to examine the faults, not of the disciples, but of the Pharisees and all who follow in their ways. In verse 6, it says the people honour God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So firstly, I intend to consider their false profession. In verse 7, it said they worship God in vain. So secondly, I intend to look at their false worship. And in verse 8, they're accused of laying aside the commandments of God and following the rules of men instead. So finally we'll consider their false doctrine. So firstly then, the false, there's a false profession here. Now by profession, we're not referring to their jobs of course. This profession means what someone professes to believe. What they say they believe in. So if someone professes To belong to God but doesn't. Their profession is false. Jesus quotes from the prophecies of Isaiah. The prophet's warning was aimed at a backslidden Israel. But here Jesus wields it against the Pharisees. He's showing that Isaiah's description fits all those who claim to be God's children but who are not. In Christendom today, there are just as many false professors. You're unlikely to find a gathering of professing believers that doesn't contain some weeds amongst God's plants. They're people who profess to know Jesus Christ, but are still in their sin. The reason the Jews were able to draw near to God with their lips at all was because of their religious upbringing. They were taught the right things to say and the right things to do. But that's all their religious instructors could do. They they couldn't change hearts. That takes a miracle of God's grace. It's for this reason I've always believed the most fertile ground for producing false professors is ironically the Christian family. No one receives more religious instruction in the things of the Bible than than the, the child of a Christian home. Now we know some children of believers react strongly against their upbringing and deliberately go full steam ahead into rebellion. And we know others grow up to be genuine believers on Jesus Christ. But there's a third class They want to please their parents and the people in their church circles. Every time they do or say something Christian-like, they receive affirmation. And they like being told they're doing well, so they continue. Parents and church leaders strike while the iron's hot and often give these young people positions of responsibility. And some of these will go on to become leaders in churches. All the while, they don't know Christ. Their hearts are far from Him. And the danger is, entire churches can be ruled by a class of accomplished fakers. I think ideally, churches would be governed by those who come from Christian homes and those also who come from non Christian backgrounds as well. And if nothing else, it would provide for a diversity of life experience and give the church a better perspective and hopefully make the church a more welcome place for inquirers false professions abound in Proverbs 20 and verse 6 it says most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness but a faithful man who can find what then is a true profession The most important principle is the only one who can make a sincere profession is he who has been made the object of God's saving grace. A true profession must come from a new heart. And a profession is only real if the faith it claims to own is also real. Faith is a heart matter but its profession is outwardly expressed. Firstly, through words, we're to confess Jesus as our Lord and Saviour to as many as will hear it, believers and unbelievers alike. We tell them wholeheartedly, we believe we have a stake in Calvary. We tell them about the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our Saviour. And we tell them, not only with great joy and enthusiasm, but with a sense of gravity. Luke 12, verses 8 and 9 says, Whoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men, he that doesn't confess me before men, shall be denied before the angels of God. So our profession is expressed in words, but also through things we do. In our baptism, we make a declaration to the hosts of heaven and all people present that we are nailing our colours to the mast of God's ship. And having water applied to us is a representation they can all see. That the Holy Spirit has applied Himself, t- applied Himself to us, and, and made us new creations in Christ. In breaking bread together, it said we are proclaiming the Lord's death. That is, we're proclaiming He's the very bread of heaven who came down to came down to earth to give life to men. And our profession extends to all our actions because. God's Word tells us that our very behaviour in day-to-day life informs people about our profession. So we've said something about false and true professions of faith. Well, let's move on to the second point. False worship. Jesus tells the Pharisees their worship was vain. Pointless. And It wasn't a waste of time only because their religious practices had become distorted through tradition. Their worship was unacceptable to God because their hearts were not right. This criticism was especially pointed because it was one of their own prophets being quoted from. Some people think the religion of these Hebrews was merely about performing rituals, but that's not right. Even the ancients were told in the law, they must love God and love others. And they were meant to see in all their law and in all the prophets, the coming Messiah pictured, who they were to have faith in, to be able to say like Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he's coming and that I'll see him. This is quite stark. Proverbs 15 verse 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The problem, of course, is these Pharisees wouldn't have read this proverb and concluded it applied to them. But the principle's there. If you are one who makes a false profession, it invalidates all your worship. All your prayers ignored. All your songs of praise despised. All the while the false professor goes about his business in life and worship, there is this elephant in the room. His heart remains black and his spirit is in rebellion against God having said all this believers in our day shouldn't be complacent now you know what I believe all our acceptance by God is on account of our union with Jesus Christ I've sinned today and I've asked God to forgive me and help me to do better And because of God's amazing grace, I have the confidence my salvation is secure. But I can still displease God. Not just through sinful actions or thoughts either. It's possible some aspects of my very worship are not right. I may from time to time utter prayers here with a heart that is for a time overtaken with unbelief. And I shouldn't expect God to pay them much attention. You and I need to be careful. Rather than relying on prescribed forms of worship. Or practices that we've just had handed to us by the Christians who've gone before. We should be always ready to reevaluate every aspect of our worship. And see it conforms to the word of God. But out there in the Christian world, there are practices which to me are clearly erroneous. We see churches where the word of God is in the background, replaced by more singing. We see churches that are trying to conform to Old Testament practices, rather than enjoying the liberty found in Christ. We see churches where people have visual and auditory hallucinations. Assuming them to be manifestations of God. We could go on and on. But let's never arrogantly look down on others who do things in a different way. And assume ours is the proper way. We should show diligence in making sure our worship conforms to the Bible. And show charity towards those who do things differently. Engage with them if you feel it's appropriate. Just gently expose them To different ways of thinking and pray the Lord would help them and us in our worship. So, having said a bit about false worship, are there any guidelines in Scripture to help us understand what constitutes true worship? You might like to think of it in terms of the inclusion of the whole Trinity. For example, we aim our prayers at the Father. But these are done in the name of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. We need to be in a relationship with all three persons of the Trinity for our worship to be acceptable before we even consider modes of worship. The true worshipper must have God as his father and only those who have been born again are truly children of God the Father. The true worshipper must also be united to Christ. They must count him as their redeemer and understand that acceptance is all through him. And the true worshipper must possess the Holy Spirit. He needs to have been subjected to that inward work whereby the Spirit makes his home in him. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. In uh, the 96th Psalm verses 8 and 9 it says this. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. True worship will only be accepted from a being that is holy itself. And the only way a man or woman can be made holy in the sight of God is by receiving the righteousness of Jesus. As for worship practices now, I have only real time to reiterate that our worship must be, uh, it must conform To God's revealed word. So, what this means is when we sing, we're to ensure the doctrines of our songs sound and that we sing from the heart. When we pray together, we're to align our prayers as far as possible with what God has revealed and give prominence to honouring God and acknowledging our sins when we testify to others we're to do it with a sense of soberness and not be fearful of telling people the truth and for those who are called to preach the word of God to his people their duty is to be faithful to the word and ensure Jesus Christ is lifted up in all that they preach we've looked at false and true professions we've looked at false and true worship and now we come to our third point. False doctrine. False doctrine. Jesus' accusation was the word of God had been set aside for the sake of rules made by men. We mentioned the example he used already. The care of your family was enshrined in God's holy law. But a rule. Created by the Pharisees. Allowed a man to be free from that responsibility. This wouldn't be the first time Jesus challenged them. About the distortion and perversion of God's law. He says, remember. They, they criticised others for small faults. While having bigger faults themselves. Remember, you know. They, they were accused of criticising someone. Because they've got a speck of dust in their eye when they had a great big log in in their own eye. Some, you know, would strain their drinks, strain them to avoid uh, accidentally swallowing uh, a fly. Because creeping things were forbidden as food. But as was their habit, the Jews took this to a ridiculous extreme. Yet, while they took care about these tiny observances, they were guilty of serious breaches of the law. <clears throat> Think about how false doctrines arise at all in this world. Some doctrines are just outright inventions. Muhammad, in creating his new religion, he took elements from Judaism, Roman Catholicism, and paganism... ...and even Christianity. So he had access to God's truth... ...but he decided instead... ...to invent... ...a huge amount of new and strange doctrine... ...as well as... ...assimilating ideas from other other, other religions. Well some false doctrines... ...come about through misinterpretation... ...people who actually... ...pay attention to the scriptures. Rome for example... ...took uh, Jesus' words... ...this is my body... Literally, and they came up with the doctrine of transubstantiation, which I've spoken about before. Some of these false doctrines appear because some principle is taken too far. Uh, the Jews reasoned that if the priests had to ritually wash the items in the temple, well, they too should wash their possessions in a similar way. Hence we get Jesus' criticism of them ritually Ritually washing their pots and pans and so on. And we might argue that some false doctrine comes about because of uh, imbalances in emphasis. Protestants have, in the past, sacrificed the principle of Christian love for the sake of purity of worship. This is how we ended up with the sad situation where non conformist Christians were persecuted by fellow Protestants sometimes even being put to death. It wouldn't be unfair to say that all the troubles, schisms, persecutions, heresies and so on committed by professing Christians are due to a manhandling of God's word. They, they might get some idea. And then they recommend it to others. Then they insist on it. And finally they harass Or who refuse to conform. And inevitably, these type of principles end up becoming more important to these people than Scripture itself. Western Protestantism isn't immune from this tendency. In in our country, we've suffered from the leftovers of Victorian morality that insisted on details to do with, you know, habits and dress and things. And they neglected love for the brethren. Some of these Protestant traditions are held to be so important, it's believed, you know, salvation is dependent on them. We can have some very strange priorities when looking for a place to worship at. Uh, One of my faults years ago in this regard used to be about Bible versions. I I started my Christian life in an environment where it was believed you could accurately assess the spiritual state of another congregation by the version of Bible they read. When when I was ever looking for a new place to to worship, my first question wasn't... uh, Do they preach the gospel faithfully? Or do they magnify the name of Jesus Christ? Or is the Holy Spirit's presence in the hearts of the people evident by their love for one another? No. I started with, what Bible versions do they use? And in other people, too, there are strange priorities. A man told me only the other week he wouldn't ever come to New Road because I didn't preach each week about conspiracies. That's true. But it's also very funny if you know me. I I believe in all kinds of conspiracies because, you know, Satan is is the master conspirator. And it should not surprise us in the least that this world is saturated with all kinds of conspiracies at the highest level it's, it should be expected by Christians but it's not my job to preach all that uh, it's my job to preach Christ and I have to leave you know exposing evil uh, in, in those realms uh, to, to, to others I just I just speak at uh, uh, I just speak about it generally and talk about the whole world being uh, overtaken with sin Even the people who expose conspiracies. (laughs) Well, look, it's okay for a person to have a mental list of things they want in a new church. All I'm saying is they should have the sorts of priorities I outlined a moment ago. And if they find themselves in a blessed position of having a few decent churches to choose from, then they can move on to those other criteria. Well, we talked a bit about faulty doctrines and beliefs among Christians, Jews and others, and we'll conclude with a few comments about what constitutes true doctrine, good doctrine. We don't want the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't want the doctrine of Balaam. We don't want the doctrine of devils. We need the doctrine of Christ Christ his doctrine is so powerful it caused hearers to be astonished his doctrine came from heaven itself and he taught doctrine to his apostles and other followers and he further caused some of these people to write down his doctrine and here we have it the bible this is where we get our doctrine from the Bible's history and its law its prophecies, its uh, gospel accounts, its letters this is why I encourage you to read it and be familiar with it I regret not having done this more myself pray to God he'd help me to pay it more attention so I can refine my understanding so that I hold to the exact same doctrines as Jesus Christ did doctrine is important, I wish the I wish the modern church would take it more seriously. Some speak of it in quite a dismissive way. And one of the reasons people would do that is... They are frightened that if they engage with theology in any way... They might find themselves unable to understand it. And that will mean they will feel themselves to be not quite as intelligent as they thought. Or other people might see them as less intelligent... And for some reason, people are terrified of not being intelligent. They like to think themselves as intelligent. This is, why, this is why you'll find the majority of people think they have above average intelligence. And you just think about that for a moment. Most people think they have above average intelligence. Um, look, God did not give me some exceptional ability to understand and uh, express doctrines. I have to leave that to others who he's given that ability to. So I just accept my place. I accept the level of understanding God has given me because that level of understanding is absolutely right in his purposes. And so if someone finds they struggle to understand doctrine the answer is not to dismiss it because they're frightened someone might think they're not very intelligent the the answer is to embrace just what God has given you and take your understanding of doctrine as far as you are able as far as God has enabled you had he wanted you to become an expert theologian he could have given you the ability but he chose not to because his plan, his purpose required that. So please, just accept doctrine as a gift of God. Receive it with thanks. And, and just really um, do your best to, to understand it. Our doctrine, like our profession of faith and our worship, should always have a Christ at its centre. Because, folks, the only reason we have a profession at all, is because of him. The only reason our worship is acceptable to God is because of him. And so, as we, as a church, learn doctrines together, we should always try to refer them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll finish with this. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever you do, in word or deed, to all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Amen.